A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to our growing gathering of wrong thinkers. The Brian Hyde Show is brought to you each day by Firesteel and the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and Jeff Staples Real Estate and Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. And I will be adding other sponsors as time goes on, but I do appreciate them all making this program possible. Thank you for being a part of our growing audience. And if you haven't checked out the show notes, can I just recommend, there's always good thought-provoking, you know, food for thought there at uh, thebrianhydeshow.com. Just look for the daily show notes. Here we go for September 24th of 2020. What a year this has been. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, how this year has been one long, uninterrupted learning experience for many of us. And as you probably know, learning experiences typically aren't the most fun thing. They can be appreciated, but that's usually in hindsight. At the time you're going through the learning experience, uh, how would Clubber Lang put it? Pain. Yeah, there's, there's just lots of pain to be experienced. I'm going to get to a, a very... Uh, timely and short essay from Jeffrey Tucker about uh, his top 20 lessons learned in 2020. But before I get there, I want to pose a quick question to you, and that is, what would you say is the biggest choice before us? I'm talking as, you know, as Americans, as citizens, maybe, you know, at an individual level as human beings, what do you think is the biggest choice before us today? I think it's a pretty safe bet that you'd get different answers from different people based on, you know, what uh, what their priorities are, what they're trying to accomplish. But I think George Gilder makes a, a very solid case here that one of the biggest choices that we have today isn't so much about, well, who should we elect in the election just 40 days away or what, however long it is. I think it's really the choice of whether or not we will choose liberty or lockdown. And it's not a matter of, well, you know, uh, we can have both. No. (laughs) At this point, it's pretty clear. You're going to have to choose one or the other. And if you think, but we can give up the liberty for a little short time, and, you know, then then, uh, once the lockdowns are over, you know, everything will go back to the way it was. No. It isn't going to work that way. As with the war on, you know, anything, the war on terror, the war on drugs, the war on poverty, Anytime government goes to prosecute a war, even if it's a war against a virus, it means that you are going to yield and give up liberties, essential, natural rights. The government is going to assume more power. It's going to become bigger, more costly. And if you've been paying attention, you know it never goes back to the size that it was before. Some have called it the ratchet effect I, I think it's it's an accurate way of depicting it. So that's the choice in front of us right now. Listen to what uh, George Gilder has to say. 
He says, by late April 2020, with reports of plummeting death rates from all causes, the COVID-19 crisis was essentially already over. Signs mounted that this new viral mania, as he called it, was far less severe than previous flus in 1918, 1958, and 1968 that occasioned no lockdowns or business closures, despite millions of deaths from each around the globe. He says, with the average age of COVID-19 deaths reported to be as high as 85 in Massachusetts, where he resides, and he says, and look on in uh, wild surmise, looks on in wild surmise, rather, the real mortality numbers for COVID-19 sunk into the statistical noise. Hey, but why am I telling you this, he asks, when we now have a stirring and authoritative work by the eminent Jeffrey Tucker, who has mastered all the data and transcended it with a redemptive call to sanity and real science. And by the way, I don't have a copy of this book yet, but I am going to order uh, Jeffrey Tucker's book, Liberty or Lockdown. In fact, I hope to get him on this program and and pick his ample brain. Just as a quick aside here, when it comes to getting this information down and really digging in and doing the research, Jeffrey Tucker has become one of the most trusted voices to whom I turn to get a better better understanding of the, the COVID data as well as what officials are doing and why what they're doing doesn't square with what the data is telling us. It's been politicized, and as you might guess, things that have been politicized tend to get out of control pretty quick. Back to George Gilder. George Gilder says, with deaths from COVID-19 coming at an age higher than the age of normal deaths and the crisis evidently defunct, a new pandemic of doom erupted as a panic of polls. In rising astonishment, we contemplate a comedy of mash-minded med admins and stooges covering their ifs, ands, or buts with ever more morbid and distorted statistics. He says, by September, the Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, acknowledged that only 6% of U.S. deaths came from COVID-19 alone. The average number of comorbidities, such as diabetes or cancer, was 26 Thus, definitive COVID-19 deaths, meaning those caused by the coronavirus alone, had only reached a U.S. total of some 10,000 by the end of summer, less than ordinary flu, which takes many more young people. Okay, again, just a quick aside. Why, pray tell, does our news media insist on telling us why 200,000 people have died of COVID? Maybe they're just lazy. Maybe they haven't been willing to to really look into this for themselves, but for some reason, they are towing the line and they are parroting an official narrative which doesn't square with the truth. And I can only guess that the reason they're doing this is because it it plays into their, uh, their desire to have a contact high from associating with authority. And that authority is, of course, flexing for us to assure us that, no, 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 we're really in charge. But again, it doesn't square with reality. 10,000 people had died specifically of COVID. All those other comorbidities, well, we're supposed to pretend that that was, that was the work of the virus and nothing more. Can you not see how this, this information is being cooked and twisted and manipulated? Presumably to, to move us in a particular direction. We'll talk more about that in a minute. George Gilder points out, as deaths plummeted, governors seized ever more extreme emergency powers, testing their citizens prodigally. They 
obsessively counted positives as cases. Now, as Jeff Tucker understands, those positives are increasingly statistical false positives since the vast majority of the test takers are free of the disease, accompanied by no symptoms. This became a disease so fearful in its effects that you could not even tell you had it. The country broke in two with mostly slave states in the north and far west, fraught with masks and lockdowns, and free states in the south, such as Georgia, Florida, and Texas, where governors refused to take a hammer and sickle to their economies. He says the crisis chiefly hit the politicians and the political Dr. Fauci, who had gullibly accepted and trumpeted what statistician William Briggs called the most colossal and costly blown forecast of all time. An egregious statistical horror story of millions of projected deaths suffused with incense and lubrigious uh, accents from the Imperial College of London to Harvard School of Public Health prompted the politicians to impose a vandalistic lockdown on the economy. It would have been an outrage, even if the assumptions were not astronomically, wildly astronomically wrong. Flattening the curve was always a fool's errand that simply widened the damage. George Gilder says already in April, a global study published in Israel by Professor Isaac Ben Israel, chairman of the Israeli Space Agency and Council on Research and Development, showed that the spread of the coronavirus declines to almost zero after 70 days, no matter where it strikes and no matter what measures governments impose to try to thwart it. This study's conclusions were repeatedly confirmed in the months that followed, as Jeffrey Tucker documents in his profound and incendiary book. He covers the onset of the lockdowns, the outrageous political response, the psychological and medical toll, the immense economic costs, the history of 20th century viruses, and the political response, and so much more, including, and especially, the irresponsible media coverage that helped fuel and cover up the political panic. Okay, I'm going to stop here. You can check out the rest of this review of uh, Jeffrey Tucker's new book. Again, this is George Gilder, We Must Choose Liberty or Lockdown. That's pretty much going to be the theme for the rest of this hour as uh, we examine why should we have to make such a choice? It's not the kind of thing that I think most of us would have, you know, woke up this morning saying, well, I better choose today. Is it going to be liberty or lockdown? No, that's a choice that's being forced on us by those fear-driven politicians and their media enablers. But uh, not making a choice, guess what? It's not a choice. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out to the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. That would be my friend John Staples and his wife, Heather. Lots of expertise, lots of clout when it comes to getting you pre-qualified and then getting you your home mortgage or perhaps refinancing your existing mortgage. Best of all, Patriot Home Mortgage is operational in 23 different states. Yeah, they started small, but they have grown, and they are there to help you. And, uh, you know, time is of the essence. So if, if you are, you know, looking to purchase a home, this is where I, why you need to get on the horn right now and get in touch with John at uh, staplesmortgage.com. 
That's where you go to get your information right there, staplesmortgage.com. Again, it's the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I want to thank them for being a sponsor of The Brian Hyde Show. So I was sharing with you this uh, this book review, We Must Choose, Liberty or Lockdown. This is from George Gilder. He's talking about the book by Jeffrey Tucker, which has just come out. Just a couple quick thoughts here. Um, in this book, Jeffrey Tucker shows that this virus, like all previous viral flus, will only give way to herd immunity and to the natural immunity of most human beings to the worst effects. And whether it's through natural propagation of an extremely infectious pathogen or through the success of one of the hundreds of vaccine projects, or through the mutation of the virus to ubiquitous predictability, like the common cold, this virus will eventually become a trivial event. But in the meantime, there is no evidence that indicates this virus was exceptionally dangerous, except in nursing homes and prisons, densely populated with already vulnerable people. This has been a huge comedy of errors, and all the reports of rising deaths. Why? New York, I think especially. Coronavirus deaths. You know, they said people were dying from the virus, uh, dying with the virus. Actually, here's what they said. People who died with the virus were dying from it. And then they ascribed to coronavirus other deaths among people with symptoms of pulmonary distress without even testing them. And, of course, those death rates have continued to be inflated with further reclassification of pneumonia and other pulmonary deaths. As George Gilder points out, when we reach herd immunity and nearly everyone has the antigen, nearly all deaths can be chalked up to COVID-19. He says, let's stop pretending that our policies have been rational and need to be phased out as if they once had a purpose. They should have been reversed summarily in March and acknowledged to be a mistake perpetrated by statisticians with erroneous computer models, but instead, we have all been subjected to six months of hell, and in my, uh, my home county of Utah County in Utah, hell has just been dialed up to level 11 by our governor and a couple of craven county commissioners who, through trickery and a little bit of treachery, enacted a mask mandate without ever having any kind of public comment on it. I'll be talking about that in the other hour of the show, but uh, it's it's sickening. Oh, and they disconnected their phones, or at least uh, they won't answer their phones. These county commissioners, uh, um, I guess they're scared. Maybe they should be. Because uh, by by allowing this county to be moved back to to condition orange, that's the kiss of death for businesses that were already struggling. They can't operate at 40% capacity, so... You know, well, we're just doing this to protect you. No, you're not. And the fact that they uh, originally had had discussion of a mask mandate on the county commission agenda and then were said, oh, well, that's a mistake. And because they couldn't change the agenda, it was within 24 hours of the meeting, they canceled the meeting. And then used some procedural rule that is normally only used in cases of extreme emergency to get two of the three commissioners to sign off on a mask mandate. Sorry, I'm spilling my candy in the movie lobby, but Furious doesn't begin to cover how upset I am that they would do this. So let's stop pretending that these policies were ever rational. They're not. Even if a majority of people have accepted and embraced them, it doesn't mean they're rational. By the way, 
George Gilder points out one of the biggest failures of this this year and all of this uh, lockdown overreach is the failure of the intellectual classes to speak out. A lot of civil libertarians went quiet. The center-left became full pro-lockdown, most likely for political reasons, regardless of the cost. And suddenly, to be pro-lockdown became an orthodoxy. Dissidents feared for their jobs and reputations. Suddenly, in these days, to have favored normal life and freedom of association, it's thought crime. It's wrong think, which is why you are in good company at this moment. We have a choice, and the choice is liberty or lockdown. And that may seem like an easy one. Well, of course I'll choose liberty. But there are an awful lot of sunshine patriots out there, meaning people who will talk the talk. Yeah, 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 man, I'm on board. But the second that they are pressed or the second it becomes painful or inconvenient, they run for the hills. What was the meme I saw earlier today? Oh, it was, it was a, it's a screenshot from a, the original Planet of the Apes. When the apes first encounter, you know, the, the humans. And that look of disbelief on their face as they're looking, I can't believe what I'm seeing. These, these human beings, we, we, we've heard the tales but never knew they existed. That look of incredulity on their faces. And the caption says, the way people look at you when you walk into a store and you're not wearing a mask. I thought, nailed it. That's, uh, that's exactly what it feels like. All right, moving on. So we've had a lot of opportunities to learn this year. What do you suppose the most important takeaways are of 2020? Since we were just talking about Jeffrey Tucker and his book, Liberty or Lockdown, here are the top 20 lessons he says he's learned in 2020. He says, this year's a shock. It's been a shock. Here's an early sketch of what I've learned. Number one, governments are fully capable of doing the unthinkable and doing so suddenly with no exit plan, little consideration of cost, and a callous disregard for individual rights. Number two, the U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights are largely irrelevant when governments declare an emergency. Number three, the business lobby is far less powerful than he had previously assumed. Number four, more politicians, many politicians rather, care more about their personal power than public opinion. Number five, people in general are less committed to their freedoms than he had previously believed. Number six, economic understanding is rare. Number seven, there is no such thing as settled science. Scientists disagree, sometimes radically, and many times for political reasons. Number eight, the structure of law and the regime are fully capable of dramatic and even overnight change. Number nine, influence is mysterious. The media report what fits their preferred narrative and ignore everyone with a different view. Number ten, professional credentials are useful but not decisive for any argument. In a crisis, they are weaponized. Number 11, people under duress in the shock of lockdown are capable of stunning lies and cruelty. Number 12, most people haven't the slightest clue about how to think about statistics and hard science. For many people, data are mere abstractions. Number 13, hardly any political lobby or interest group genuinely cares about the poor, working classes, or marginalized groups, at least not enough to put their interests above a political agenda. Number 14, very often people's proclaimed principles are nothing but social signaling devices. Number 15, the propagation of truth is burdened by disadvantages relative to error and lies. 
Number 16, known science is fully capable of vanishing in one generation. Number 17, no matter how seemingly intelligent and impressive are our institutions, they are neither created nor managed by equally intelligent people. Number 18, markets are adaptive beyond anything he ever imagined possible. Number 19, psychological health for most people is bound up with possessing rights and freedoms. Number 20, individual moral courage is society's most precious treasure, as rare as it is powerful. I really have got to get Jeffrey Tucker to join me for an interview. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. Hey, if I could just throw this quick invitation out for you. If you haven't been to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, please take the time to visit it. And, and I want to offer one other suggestion here. If you have feedback, and I hope you do, there are, uh, there are ample opportunities for you to uh, send me. You can drop me an email. You can send me a message through the website. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast if you would like. If you find value in what I am doing here on a daily basis, you can actually become a Wrong Thinker patron. And you can support the program with a dollar a month, five dollars a month, whatever. Any amount is greatly appreciated, and, and it is used for the purpose of proclaiming truth, or at least truth to the best of my understanding, and I, I so appreciate those who have already done so. But I do welcome your feedback, and I appreciate hearing from those of you who have discovered uh, this program and, and are, are likewise sharing it on social media, telling friends about it. This is not just about a, you know, it's not just a platform for my voice. This is a platform for other voices that I, I wonder if you would, would encounter outside some of the more mainstream channels, because it seems like a lot of those mainstream channels are, are more focused on the official narrative and supporting, you know, what everybody obviously agrees with than trying to think clearly and independently in a time of crisis. And I've mentioned this many times before, but I believe that is our single greatest duty as citizens is to think clearly and independently in times of crisis. That doesn't mean we have to walk in lockstep. doesn't mean we have to agree on every little detail or all vote the same. We've just got to break free of a lot of the partisan slavish thinking that unfortunately is part and parcel of what we're going through right now. Let's talk about uh, the culture war raging across America right now. And I don't know if you watched, the. there was an announcement made in Louisville, Kentucky, in the Breonna Taylor case. Apparently, the police officers did a no-knock raid, or at least it had elements of no-knock. Bottom line is, they broke in the door, they came into the wrong place, shot the wrong woman. She wasn't even, uh, she wasn't being sought, she wasn't resisting, she was killed, and... Three officers potentially had faced charges. Only one of them will face charges, and I think it was wanton endangerment, which it's a felony. That's, that's a serious charge. But uh, the rioters, always eager for something over which to destroy, 
were going nuts, not just in Louisville, but all over the country. So the point here is our streets look like a war zone in many of the nation's cities. What do you suppose is the nature of the culture war that is going on right now? Doug Casey always has a good take on these sorts of things. And he says, culture is composed of the customs, traditions, and beliefs of a group of people. It's a way of seeing the world and interpreting reality. It determines what's right and wrong and good and evil. Culture is what ties people together or divides them. It's a composite of religion, politics, economics, philosophy, and language. But the composite is more important than any one component. Culture is what ties groups and countries together. And when a cultural split develops, such as the one we have now in the U.S., a country cannot, and more importantly, should not, stay together. He says it's poisonous to keep different cultures together in the same political unit. Politics is all about deciding who gets what, how, and at whose expense. And he says it can be fairly cordial if everybody shares the same culture, but if they don't, it's a formula for disaster. So in the U.S., politics has become a contest of who gets to impose their will on the rest of the country. Spot on. That's exactly what it is. And he says when that's the case, a country is best off dividing. It shouldn't be held together artificially or by force, but voluntarily. Freedom of association is necessary for a civil society. People generally prefer to associate with those with whom they share a culture. Birds of a feather do, in fact, flock together. Now, the alternative is chaos or even civil war. And Doug Casey says, I suspect what we've seen in the last few months is only an overture to what's coming. The U.S. is no longer a country that's united by language, ideas, ethnicity, or anything else. It has become a multicultural domestic empire. The essence of an empire is coercion. The divide between the components of the U.S. is growing and solidifying. He says politicians talk about bringing us together, but he says that's nonsense. Politics only brings people together by force, the way a pressure cooker brings things together. It may look like it's succeeding for a while, but when the pressure builds enough, there's an explosion. Cultures develop organically. Political coercion can't make disparate people like each other. Now, he says, apart from that, I'd argue that the U.S. has become too large, too complex, and too diverse to be governable. It's very different from what it was at its founding or even 50 years ago. For one thing, its central government is already totally bankrupt. Productive parts of the country will increasingly resent a corrupt Washington that supports itself, its cronies, and hordes of welfare recipients at their expense. He says perhaps the U.S. should break up peacefully before the situation gets completely out of control. But how? The last time the U.S. tried to divide, the result was the incorrectly named Civil War. The unpleasantness of 1861 to 1865 was not, in fact, a civil war, but a war of secession. The South simply wanted to go its own way, much as the colonies did in 1776. A civil war, by contrast, is one in which two or more parties try to take over the same government. That's very different from wanting to part company. He says the South should have been allowed to break off in much the same way that, the, that Slovakia and the Czech Republic separated or the way that Yugoslavia divided into six republics or, for that matter, the way that the Soviet Union broke up into 15 republics. Abraham Lincoln created the poisonous meme that the state should be held together by force. 
Most people now think that it's some type of crime to even intimate that the U.S. could or should break up. Interestingly, Doug Casey says there are groups in California, Oregon, and Washington that are talking about it, not to mention millions of Hispanics that see the Southwest as the object of a reconquista. The coming election is going to be one of the most important since that of 1860, which installed Lincoln, and after which Lincoln precipitated the war between the states. Americans in blue counties and red counties have come to dislike one another on a visceral level. At this point, families can't even get together for a Thanksgiving or Christmas without acrimony. And he says the situation is quite serious, and the hysteria over COVID-19, combined with a collapsing economy, has made it much worse. As outrageous as it sounds, he says the U.S. should divide into at least two smaller units. Americans can then peacefully choose which version of America suits them. As it stands, the election will be contested no matter which side wins, simply because the country has become totally polarized. No matter who wins, the other side is going to be terminally unhappy with the result. Now, just last week, he spelled out six reasons Biden, or at least the Democrats, were likely to win. But he says no matter who wins, however, about half the country is going to be very unhappy. And that's likely there's likely to be some serious violence as the winning side tries to impose its values on the losing side. He says, we know the Republican candidate will be Mr. Trump, but it doesn't make much difference who the Democratic candidate is at this point. The fact that Biden is borderline senile is irrelevant. They could probably run a chimpanzee in Biden's place and expect the same result because this election is about cultural values in general and hating Trump in particular. It has little to do with what Trump does or doesn't believe. He has no philosophical center, no real core beliefs, but he's a traditionalist, a cultural conservative. And he's very outspoken. That's why he serves as an excellent lightning rod for the building storm. Now, unfortunately, he's also an authoritarian and a jingoist at heart. His supporters equate that with strength. Unfortunately, Americans from both parties will want an authoritarian to keep some semblance of order as things get wild and woolly. And Doug Casey says, I think the Dems will win for the reasons I spelled out last week, despite their probably having overplayed their hand with their support of Black Lives Matter and even Antifa, things which could still tip the balance in Trump's favor. When it comes to a choice between order and ideology, the average guy still prefers order. So he says the election is still close to an even odds bet for that reason, even though the polls and his own reasoning for what it's worth tells him the Democrats will win. But he says after the election, we're going to see some major fireworks. Now, again, this is Doug Casey. Take it, uh, you know, with a grain of salt, if you will. You can check out the show notes. I'll have this one posted in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. But I think he gives a pretty fair assessment there. I don't see a whole lot with which I could disagree. I will admit, personally, I'm leaning towards uh, with, with the ongoing violence and the threats of, we'll burn this thing down if we don't get our way. I think maybe the edge will go to Trump. Maybe that's just me doing some wishful thinking or hoping aloud that uh, that at least uh, Trump is the one who wins because I think no matter what happens, Doug Casey is correct. Half the country is going to feel like it has not only been gypped out of its, uh, its cultural values, but that uh, it's facing an existential threat. In other words, the other side is going to try to eradicate it entirely. And I don't think he's wrong in thinking that way. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. How often have you heard people talk about owning a home as the American dream? Now, I'll admit it. My wife and I were talking the other day about when we bought our first home way back when, and and I'm going to confess this. I think we paid $43,000, something like that, $43,500 for our first home. It was a little two-bedroom, one-bath, probably maybe a 1,000-square-foot little starter home on a quarter acre, beautiful fenced yard, nice mature trees. It was, uh, was it an FHA home? All I remember is our payments... And they, they could have been subsidized. If we couldn't make the full amount, we could we could actually get some assistance in making our payments of $290 a month. And did I mention it was a nice home? It was it was, you know, I don't know how old it was, but it was it was actually a very cozy and comfortable little home. Well, once we were in the game, of course, we like lots of people, we sold that home for a profit and worked our way up and bought another home and then built a home and 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 so on. And and so I, I have to admit, for a good portion of my adult life, I have really embraced the idea that home ownership is the American dream. But I want to give you a counterpoint, or at least a, a contrary point of view on this, from Thomas L. Knapp, who asks the question, is home ownership really the American dream? Here's what he has to say. He says, in 2016, then-presidential candidate Donald Trump bemoaned the lowest U.S. home ownership rate in 51 years, promising that we will bring back the American dream. In a 2019 memorandum on federal housing finance reform, now President Trump called on federal agencies to make sustainable home ownership for American families our benchmark of success. Trump's 2020 Democratic opponent, Joe Biden, pledges to rebuild the middle class, which he defines as a value set, which includes the ability to own your own home. And while his campaign platform also nods to tenant protections and affordable rental housing, it's clear Biden agrees with former President Barack Obama that home ownership constitutes the most tangible cornerstone that lies at the heart of the American dream. But Thomas Knapp asks, are they right? Is home ownership the embodiment of the American dream? Are Trump and Biden trying in their own ways to deliver the goods for you? Or are they just beholden to special interests whose members make larger campaign contributions than you do? For example, realtors, developers, and mortgage lenders. Now he says maybe a little bit of both, but the latter is certainly a factor. It's not obvious that home ownership is a good fit, a wise investment for that matter, for everyone. He says the case for home ownership includes things like building equity instead of flushing rent down the financial drain and owning something that, uh, that might, at least prior to the 2007 housing collapse, uh, appreciate in value. So here's the case for renting instead. He says the average American moves 11 times in his or her life. Given a life expectancy of 80 years, that's a move every seven years or so, 23 years short of paying off a 30-year mortgage. Now, when we're kids, we move where our parents go. As adults, we might move for work, for school, for marriage or equivalent, after a divorce or equivalent, into larger quarters when children come along, into smaller quarters when we retire. And we've got plenty of reasons. And he says a renter is always, almost always within less than a year of fulfilling a lease agreement and isn't likely to lose much by kicking out of that agreement. 
Selling a home for enough to pay off the mortgage and perhaps pocket some money is risky, speculative, and far from time certain. Got a great job requiring a 200-mile move? Did triplets arrive when you were expecting and had nursery space to accommodate a single child? Divorcing under circumstances where splitting cash would entail less nastiness than splitting real estate? Is home ownership a net benefit or an anvil on your foot holding you somewhere where you no longer want to be? He says, and keep in mind, owning a home doesn't eliminate rent. Even after the mortgage is paid off, a homeowner, in quotation marks, in most places pays rent to the government. It's called property tax, but it's rent. If you don't pay, you'll eventually be evicted. I can't argue with him on that. He says, if homeownership does suit you, that's great. If not, keep in mind that politicians of both major parties want bigger campaign contributions and higher property taxes, whether you truly benefit or not. All right, that's that's an interesting take. By the way, I wouldn't let that uh, dissuade you from becoming a homeowner, but there is a little dose of reality mixed in there. All right, finally, let's talk about quenching the fire of partisan judicial politics. This year has been a dumpster fire, and uh, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and now the subsequent nomination and confirmation of a new Supreme Court justice has just amped things up that much more. Trevor Burris, writing for Cato.org, says the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg would be a tragedy at any time, but her death only six weeks before a rancorous presidential election has thrown a match into our already smoldering political tinderbox. And he says at a time when inter-party animosity is uncomfortably high, it's time to call upon the better angels of our nature to determine the future of our most precarious branch of government. His point is, in the coming weeks, there's going to be a lot of discussion, if not shouting, over who should choose Justice Ginsburg's replacement and how the Senate should behave. And he says, while the constitutional questions are simple, the president has the right to nominate a justice, the Senate has the right to confirm or not, there are bigger questions of political and institutional propriety at stake. A well-functioning liberal democracy depends not only on determining what can be done, as in what's allowed by constitutional rules, but also what should be done. The schismatic Trump era, and even the years before, made the importance of institutional norms more apparent. More apparent rather, He says our framers set up a well-designed constitutional framework, but that terse 4,500-word document hardly contains all the rules needed to construct a free, liberal, and tolerant society. Maybe there's a good reason for that. I mean, it's just keeping the government in check, right? Anyway, he says some norms, such as not threatening to jail your political opponents or help, help us in establishing a peaceful transfer of power. Other norms, such as not borking Supreme Court nominees, were violated long ago and became the new normal. He says these constitutional virtues have not been on strong display over the last four years. Elections have been contested, diplomatic powers have been abused, pardons have been distributed as personal and political favors. Meanwhile, armed protesters have taken to the streets and actually fought and murdered their political opponents. He says while our constitutional virtues are being consistently tested and violated, the norms surrounding the Supreme Court should be treated with particular care. The court, lacking any manner to enforce its judgments, depends on the perception of legitimacy to carry out its essential role. As Hamilton put it in Federalist 78, the judiciary has no influence over either the sword or the purse, no direction of either the strength or of the wealth of the society. 
and can take no active resolution whatsoever. It may truly be said to have neither force nor will, but merely judgment, and must ultimately depend upon the aid of the executive arm even for the efficacy of its judgments. Hamilton warns judiciary is in continual jeopardy of being overpowered, awed, or influenced by its coordinate branches. Given the power the court holds today, that may sound a bit anachronistic, but it's still true. Any power the court has comes from the respect it receives from the people, the other branches of our federal government, and state and local governments. If it loses that respect, our nation could find itself in a situation where Supreme Court decisions are routinely resisted and violated. So as Senator McConnell and other Republicans hold or ponder their next action, rather, uh, this should be at the forefront of their minds. After they held up the nomination of Merrick Garland in 2016 and after the heated nomination process for Justice Brett Kavanaugh, the public perception of the Supreme Court has been significantly impaired. And this is true regardless of which party started it or which party has been more righteous. Senate Republicans who endorsed holding up Garland's nomination because it was an election year will understandably be accused of rank hypocrisy if they vote to confirm Ginsburg's replacement. Any nominee who takes Ginsburg's seat under those circumstances will serve under a cloud of illegitimacy for their entire career. And now Democrats are threatening to pack the court if Republicans fill the seat and if Democrats have control of the House, Senate, and presidency after the November election. That would mean adding seats to the court to increase the total amount of justices. So in a time of cutthroat, dirty politics, he says, one wonders whether there is any politician who will sacrifice short-term gain for the long-term health of the country. Our Supreme Court nomination process is too close to being permanently broken. When no Senate ever confirms an opposite party's president's nominee, Republicans should seriously examine, therefore, whether a Supreme Court conservative majority of... 6-3 rather than 5-4 is worth the damage to the court's legitimacy. Once that line is crossed, he says, there is no going back. George Washington is rightly our most revered founding father because he constantly put decorum and virtue above politics and power grabs. In his farewell address, he warned about the dangers of political parties, acknowledging that partisan politics are to some extent inevitable, a fire not to be quenched. But he says, be vigilant, because instead of warming, it could end up consuming us. That's good advice. This is The Brian Hyde Show.